as I started studying for this week, uh, a couple weeks back, it became pretty obvious to me that uh, we couldn't cover all of chapter four this week and that we would really need to, to put into two weeks. And what we were going to do is kind of divide this sermon into two parts. They're kind of two pieces of the same coin. And we're going to look at one side of it this week, and then hopefully it will set us up for the second half of the talk next week. So if you kind of get done with uh, our time this morning and you go, well, that, that was kind of part of the idea, well, you're right, because it is only part of the idea. You get the rest of the idea next week. Um, but let me, let me start by just praying and uh, asking God to really be present with us this morning in a tangible way, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. Father, we are grateful for how you are working and moving in us. We are grateful that uh, in spite of us, you pour out love and mercy and grace. And uh, we are confident of this. We know that it is true. We see evidence of it all the time. And uh, so we praise you. And we also know that you uh, give us your spirit to speak to us. And that uh, the words that we communicate up here on the stage are just a small little piece of what you're actually doing in us. So I pray that your spirit would speak, that we would be able to hear from you, and that your words would ring true in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you looked at the bulletin, on the back side, you probably noticed the title of the sermon. The sermon title this morning is Passions, Whoredom, and a Dirty Word. We are going to talk about those three concepts that James kind of brings up to our attention in uh, James chapter 4. See, I'm convinced that within the church, there are certain words that are kind of labeled, or certain concepts that are labeled as dirty. You don't want to talk about them. You don't want them to come up. You kind of try to skirt around them or uh, not discuss them, find ways to avoid them. And uh, I think the concept we're talking about this morning is actually one that the Western church tries to avoid. So I'm sure you know this, but the church has a way of trying to, um, to not bring up certain subjects. We want, especially from the pulpit, we don't really want to talk about them. In fact, I grew up in a church culture that it wanted to ignore certain things. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the church culture I grew up in wanted to only operate with two members of the Trinity. They kind of believed that there was God, that there was Jesus, and he played a really important part, but we'll leave the Holy Spirit for other followers of Christ to talk about. Like we, we just don't want to go there. It, he's mysterious. He's kind of powerful. He might do something unexpected, and we'd prefer everything to kind of be pretty clear. I mean, you might have grown up in a church culture like that where if, you know, like in my service growing up, if you raised your hand in the service, it didn't matter what part of the service it was in, you'd better have a question. I mean, it was not, this is, we're not feeling anything here. We're just, we're just going with the facts, the details, okay? My, my church culture also, I kind of got the impression growing up that you wouldn't want to ever talk about sex. It's one of those other things that you just don't discuss from the pulpit. I mean, you, you don't want people to talk about it. You don't want them to think about it. You try to avoid the conversation. Maybe you uh, kind of skirt around certain passages. But then anytime the text 
brought the passage or the idea of sex up and you couldn't avoid it, they generally would just say, hey, it's dirty, avoid it, and then move on. And you kind of got this picture that, wait, they're not going to talk about the issue of sex. They're not going to talk about pornography, masturbation, sexual issues at any level. They're just going to avoid it because who knows how people respond to it. It kind of can be interesting. Well, the church has started to kind of transition and has begun to talk about more of the taboo subjects. So I'm convinced that it's becoming a little more free in those ways. But at the same time, the more I've been evaluating it lately, I think what we've done is we've started to replace these concepts and at the same time have started to neglect other concepts. We don't want to talk about them. There, we would kind of phrase them as dirty. Let me give you a couple examples. One thing in the Western church that we don't like to talk about very often is money. We want to avoid it. So we will occasionally talk about it, but we want to talk about it in the sense of uh, giving to a cause, or like we'll have Advent conspiracy coming up here soon. We want to talk about Advent conspiracy, but we certainly don't want to talk about giving money to the church, because that would kind of be awkward, it'd be weird, even though it's commanded, even though it's like part of what God desires for us, we just kind of shy away from it, we hesitate. Another area that I think is true that we kind of have labeled as a dirty word is the idea of Sabbath. We don't want to talk about rest. We don't want to talk about the importance, I mean, the fact that God modeled Sabbath the fact that he put it in the top ten, ten commandments, and said Sabbath is important, it's something we should keep. But we want to stay away from this idea of rest. We want to continue with our frantic pace. We want to add more to our plate that's already full. It's kind of like when you go to the buffet and you've piled it all up, and then you get to the end, and then you see the thing you really wanted. And at that point, you can't like take stuff off your plate, so you grab a second plate. It's that idea. Like, we just keep adding to the pace of life. We find ways to, you know, sign our kids up for three soccer leagues or, you know, seasons all at the same time, running from place to place, uh, trying to continue to... I mean, we even, with our jobs, we go, okay, if only I could get this next job, that job would allow me to work more hours, make more money, have more stuff so that I could then have time off if I get my new job, but I could have just done the things I wanted to do if I didn't get the new job in the first place. You get the idea, we're just, there's this pace that we set and we don't really want to talk about it within the church as well. So we avoid issues or ideas like money and Sabbath. And today, there's another dirty word that's kind of talked about in our passage. But before we get to the dirty word, James kind of walks us through uh, two other ideas preparing us for this last one. He walks us through passions, whoredom, and then a dirty word. So hold on to that idea of dirty word. We're going to look at the book of James. And uh, if you have your Bible and you've already opened to James, great. If not, open there. And what I want us to do is kind of jog through the book for a moment and uh, kind of see the argument or the idea that James is trying to present to the people, which leads us to chapter 4. James starts off by saying... Um, He's very, very encouraging at the beginning of the book. I mean, if you look at it, he says you're going through trials, you're going through temptations, 
things in your world right now are difficult. And I want you to understand in the midst of whatever trial you're going through, I will provide wisdom if you ask for it. Then he said, and no matter what temptation you are in, that I will, I will come alongside of you. I will be the giver of good gifts. I will be the person that is with you in the midst of whatever you're going through. So he's very encouraging at the start of the book. And then he shifts at the end of chapter 1 to this idea of being doers of the word. And he says, you need to be, I need to be people who do what the word says. Don't just be hearers of the word, James says, but be doers also. And what he's trying to drive home is this idea that, that we can't just hear what the word says. We can't just look at our face in the mirror, forget what we look like and then go on our way and ignore any of the changes that are necessary for us to make. So he's saying obedience in this passage is significant. And it's almost, I think, as if James is trying to bring up that idea to help people realize that, you know what? I think, Jewish community that I'm writing to, that we think we're doers of the word, but in reality... We're just hearing it. We're not acting on it. And so he starts to make, kind of, starts to build a case, build an argument. And he he goes, listen, if you're a doer of the word, you would not be showing favoritism. The start of chapter two. Favoritism, what you're starting to do is you're putting the powerful and you're highlighting them over to the weak. You're raising up the rich and ignoring the poor. Doers of the word don't do that. They don't play favorites. He then shifts to the next section. If you turn in your Bible, he says that faith without works is dead. That some of you are claiming to have a faith, but it has no action behind it. It's a faith that you talk about. It's a faith that that, uh, you read about. You say things about it, but then your lifestyle doesn't back it up. And people who don't have faith without action, their faith is dead. Now again, the point he's trying to make is, listen, people that don't have action behind their belief are not doers of the word. He shifts and goes to the next section, and he says this. We talked about it last week. The tongue. The tongue is used to either speak words that are death, death, or words that are life. And we can either use our words in a way that builds someone up, the word, uh, the, in a way that like breathes life into them, or we can use our words to tear down, destroy, injure ourselves, injure others. James is making a case here again that doers of the word actually use their tongues in a way that brings life. In the last part of chapter 3, he says another example of doers of the word are people who have a wisdom that comes from above. They're people that actually have the mind of Christ, that they allow this wisdom to infiltrate their life in such a way that everything they say and everything they do flows out of the wisdom of God. But he said some of us are being hearers only, and so our wisdom looks earthly and unspiritual and of the devil. And so he's building this case, and then he gets to this place where chapter 4 starts, and he says, I want to talk to you about your passion." I want to talk to you about what it is that is passionate within you. So look at chapter 4. He makes 
this statement. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James does, right here in this section of the text, is he asks a question, then he pretends to ask a question, and then he makes a statement. So the first question he asks, he starts off and he says, what is causing the quarreling and the fighting among us? Why is it that the body of Christ, why is it that this community of faith is fighting? Why is there tension in it? So he asks that question and he legitimately is saying, what's the answer? And then he kind of asks another question that's really more of a statement. And he says, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Isn't the problem your passions? Is the point he's making. Isn't the problem within you? Now, James, what he does is he directs our attention right back to ourselves in this passage. And he's done this several times throughout the text. But what he says at this very moment is, listen, these desires are not outside of you. These desires that are creating the tension are within you. Now, he says it with a tongue. And the other place that he says it is in chapter 1. He said, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he's dragged away and enticed. And so it's difficult to hear, but what James is saying is he's pointing back to us and he's saying, listen, in this context, the thing that you're wrestling with, the tension, the trouble, the, this whole idea of violence is coming because of what is within us. Now, what I would rather James say at that point is, guys, I understand. It's really all about your environment. Like, you can't help it. I mean, if you wouldn't have grown up in the unhappy home that you grew up in, then we wouldn't have this problem. Or the divorce you're going through right now, or the bad companions you have, or you start listing all these things. Your, your economic state right now isn't good. And if, if we start listing off all of the reasons why we say the environment is the problem and not us, what James is saying is, no, no, those things, they're, they're problems, and they exacerbate the problem. But the problem is resident with our passion. The problem is resident within us. What he's trying to do is paint a picture and say, listen, you're starting to allow your life to be dominated by your pleasures. You're starting to allow your life to be dominated by your desires. Your desires are dictating the direction of your life. They're dictating the decisions you make. They're dictating the way you respond to situations. All of it is flowing out of your passions. So what James has done is he's built this case from chapter 1 on to say, listen, this is who we are. This is what we're wrestling with. This is what it looks like to have a double-minded faith or to have a faith that does not have action with it. And then he says, you're whores. It's not really 
generally how we like pastors to talk to us, right? But he, he says, you're an adulterous people. Look at it here in the text. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose... Or, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James kind of startles the reader at this point, startles us, maybe knocks us off kilter a bit, and he just comes out and he says, we're whores, we're being adulterous, we are wayward. It's not what is supposed to be. And James makes this like harsh emphatic exclamation point kind of statement right in the midst of this argument he's building. So he's building this case and he gets to the point and it's as if he screams it through the letter. As their pastor, as the person he's, who's he's supposed to be speaking and teaching to them, he says, listen, we are whoring ourselves. Now for some of us, we go, why does he jump to this idea of being whores? Why this idea of adultery. How does this come up? Well, here's why this is a significant point that James is making. He's speaking to a Jewish audience who understands that there's a biblical theme that's traced from the very beginning to the very end of the Scriptures. And the biblical theme is this idea that we are married at some level to God. That there's this covenant that has been made. There's this relationship that has begun. And so in the Old Testament, he speaks to this idea that Israel is really the wife and God is really the husband. And that this husband comes and loves, provides for, cares for, rescues, spends time with, nurtures, loves his wife dearly, is the point throughout the entire Old Testament. Here's a couple verses. In Isaiah it says, For your maker, God, is your husband, and the Lord Almighty is his name. It's another passage in Hosea that talks about the idea that you are betrothed to God, that Israel understood, the people of God understood, that we're in this relationship, that this is a marriage that has taken place, that we had a ceremony, so to speak, that signifies we are a part of this relationship. Now that translates into the New Testament in a new way. What begins to happen in the New Testament is we begin to hear that God speaks, and the writers of the New Testament speak to the idea that the church, the people of God, are married or are the bride of Christ. That He is the groom. In fact, in Matthew, He talks about this idea, and he says, there's going to come a time when the bridegroom leaves, when the groom heads back to where he came from, and then you will fast because the groom is no longer with you. But the groom will come back, and at that point you will rejoice because you will be reunited with your husband. That's the language he begins to speak about. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise to you one husband, Christ so that I might present you pure to him. He's speaking to the church and he says, listen, church, I'm supposed to present you pure to Christ. That you are in this relationship with him. And 
another passage in Ephesians talks about this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he says, I'm speaking about a mystery, but what I'm really talking about is that God loves you, that God is married to you, that there's this relationship that's, that's something that you entered into. It's, it's interesting. We don't talk about baptism a lot, but baptism is one of the ordinances of the church. It's something we're supposed to do. And you know what it is? It's a ceremony signifying that we have entered into a new family. But it's also kind of signifying this idea, that when I stand up with my wife and I put on a ring, I'm signifying that I have committed my life to another, that there's nobody else in my life besides Shannon, that I'm going to give all of my affection, attention, love, passion towards her. That's the idea. And so baptism is saying, I'm entering into a new family, and I am designating or I'm showing people that I'm part of this new relationship. And so James is getting at this idea, and he says, listen, you are in a marriage with Christ, and what you are doing is you're starting to cheat on him. You're starting to be wayward. You're dabbling in a different relationship. You've you've begun to set aside your affection for God and you've begun to flirt with the world. You've begun to flirt with your passions. You've begun to be consumed with a different lover. And so James is saying, time out. Listen, this whole case I'm building is to get us to understand that, that we're walking away from our love. And so James is saying, you, you have a choice to make. Who are you giving allegiance to? Because if anyone wishes to be a friend of the world, James says, he becomes an enemy of God. Now, Raymond Ortland Jr. makes this statement, and it kind of, it just struck me this week. He said, it is merely desire for friendship with the world, not total immersion in it or complete identification with it, but merely the wish to be on good terms, which draws a frown from God. Faithfulness, then, is a deeply felt personal preference for the favor of God. Spiritual adultery consists in the lingering wish to retain the world's favor, even as one also wishes to enjoy the benefits of redemption. What he's saying is, listen, just wishing to be friends, just dabbling with another lover, just starting to have your affections go somewhere else makes God jealous, makes God desire you more, makes God say to you, you're you're hurting me. And so James gets to the dirty word at this point. He's talked about our passions. He's talked about this idea of whoredom. And then comes the dirty word. And the dirty word is repentance. Now, James doesn't use the word in this text, but the whole idea of this next section is what repentance looks like. So look at it with me. James 4, 7 through 9. He says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, this section describes the idea of repentance. And I am 
becoming more convinced that in the Western culture, this is becoming a dirty word. We don't want to talk about it. We want to talk about grace. We want to talk about love. We want to talk about those things, but we don't want to talk about the idea of bending our knee and submitting to Jesus Christ. And so when we think of repentance, we get these pictures in our mind, a picture of someone who's weeping and crying. We, it conjures up ideas of sackcloth and ashes. We start feeling like we need to get out a whip and kind of beat ourselves into feeling worse about ourselves. We uh, feel this, some of us, we feel this overwhelming burden begin to sit on our shoulders when we talk about the idea of repentance. We even think we're supposed to be somber or morose. I have even felt, and maybe you have too, like the little kid that has to go stand in the corner and wear the dunce cap. Like, eat bad, bad boy. You just go stand over there for a while, okay? And that's the idea, I think, that repentance sometimes brings. But here's, here's the thing. I, I am convinced that what has happened is we have a, a, a profound misunderstanding of the idea of repentance. That what we have done is we've begun to replace a gospel perspective on repentance with a religious view of See, religion is really all about this idea of me being accepted by the works that I perform. That if I do a certain number of good, it's like a report card. If I do a certain number of good things, if I'm being a good husband, if I'm a good dad to my kids, if I treat them with respect, if I uh, make sure that I'm watching my mouth and the things I say, if I try to be generally a good person, that I start like getting these grades and I'm scoring well. And when I'm scoring well, things are good because I'm in the favor of God. And we get that idea that that is what we're supposed to be obtaining. That's what it's supposed to look like, right? So in that context, repentance is really bad because repentance means we're failing. Repentance means like we don't have A's and B's anymore. We have like D's and F's. And so I begin to feel bad, and repentance becomes, in an essence, me trying to atone for my sin. It's me trying to like earn the favor of God because if I make myself feel bad enough that I've been wayward, that I haven't scored the right grade on my report card, then somehow God will understand that I'm really sad and I'm sorry and then he'll forgive, and then I'll be back in good standing with God. See, that's religion. But the gospel, gospel repentance is completely different. Gospel repentance is not based on anything that you have done, but completely on what the Father has done by sending Jesus Christ and giving him for you. That we we, like the prodigal son, want to run back to the father and go, Father, I will be your servant. I will be your slave. I will earn my way back into your favor. And the father stops you dead in your tracks, runs to you, embraces you, and says, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. The gospel says that it is God's love that leads us to repentance. It is not our repentance that brings God's love. That it's God 
who allowed Jesus to be miserable for you so that you might not have to merit forgiveness or earn it, but so that you can accept it. It's completely different. It's flipping it on its head. You're not designed to earn it, but rather to accept it. To be excited about the fact that God graciously walks into your life and gives you this freedom, this grace. So religion, what it does is it causes us to repent less and less and less. And maybe you find yourself resisting the idea of repenting, resisting the idea of going to God and saying, God, I messed up. And it's because you're afraid of the favor or the lack of it. But true repentance, true gospel repentance, actually causes us to repent more and more and more. In fact, Martin Luther used the phrase that all of life becomes repentance. Because I can continually come before him and realize that my standing with God has not changed. But instead, I'm welcomed in to talk with God. And so with that idea in mind, James gives us this list of things about what repentance looks like. And he says it's, it's really no longer a dirty word. It's a real simple process of walking before God and doing these things. And the first one is really um, the idea of submitting to God, resisting the devil, and drawing near to God. Submitting to God and resisting the devil both happen simultaneously. When you submit your life to Christ, when you come and you say, God, I, I want to get on the same page with you again. I want to make sure that I am acknowledging where I've stepped aside from what you desire, that that in itself is a resistance towards the things of the world, is the point James is making. And when we do that, it draws us near to God that we're coming close, that there's this friendship that has not been lost, but is rekindled in a unique way. And then he says, once you've taken that step, that it's really about cleansing your heart, purifying your heart, cleansing your hands. And the point he's making very simply in this text is this. Your hands need to be cleaned or your deeds need to be changed. And your heart needs to be adjusted or your motivations need to be different. So the very things that you do and the very things you feel, think, need to adjust to align with what God has called you to do. And then the last point he makes is this, be wretched, mourn, weep, turn your laughter to sadness and your joy to gloom. And this is where we kind of get the idea that, oh man, he does want us morose. He does want Really, he's making kind of two ideas, two points in this. And the first one is this. Hate sin. Anybody who truly loves God and wants to follow out of his goodness should hate sin. Should hate and reject that which separates or what hurts God. You get the idea, right? So he's saying hate sin. But then the second point, turn your laughter to morning and your joy to gloom. The point he's making is a point that I occasionally make with my kids. Um, my son, I'll pick on him for a moment, he will do something wrong and then he's confronted with the thing he did wrong and he gets this smirk on his face. You've ever had one of those smirks? 
where you did something wrong, and, and then all of a sudden you kind of like, are like, yeah, I did something wrong. And you just, you get this smirk, right? I mean, it's kind of like when, when you see someone go down to the principal's office and you go, oh, man, they're in trouble. And then they come back with a smile on their face. You're like, wait, that doesn't happen when you go to the principal's office. You're not supposed to come back that way. What, what, what James is saying here is this. Listen, knock the smirk off your face. You, you, shouldn't be, you shouldn't be like smiling as you walk your way through sin. Instead, it should actually grieve you at some level. It should sadden you. Not because it should sadden you because you haven't earned the favor of God, but it should sadden you because it, it hurt him. Does that make sense? And so he makes it really, really clear point. And here's the, the beauty of this entire passage. And I know we've only talked about one half of this idea. We're going to talk about the second half next week. But I skipped a verse. You might not have noticed it, but I skipped a real important verse. And it's a verse that I think helps us to grasp this idea of repentance even more. If you look at verse 6, he says this. He's talking about the idea of God being jealous over us. And then he says, but God gives greater grace. It doesn't matter how far you feel you've strayed. It doesn't matter how much you have, quote unquote, become an enemy of God by becoming a lover of the world, what James is saying very simply is this, there's greater grace. Whatever level you think, there's greater grace. You feel like you've stepped, there's greater grace. And the point he keeps making is that, that as we submit to God, as we humble ourselves before him, he pours exceptional grace on us. And what I want us to do for the rest of this morning is to respond to that idea. To respond to the idea that within us there are these passions that lead us at times to whoring ourselves spiritually away from God. And yet what God calls us back to is repentance because there is greater grace. He calls us back to a gospel repentance. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a period of uh, just a couple minutes of silence, quiet. And in that time, what I'm hoping will happen is that you'll just listen. That you'll listen to God, that he will speak to you, that you will ask questions about, God, where is it that passions have begun to rule in my life instead of your word? Or maybe he'll begin to speak to you about the idea that you are loved by God with an everlasting love, that you don't have to earn his favor. And all he wants to do is remind you of that truth. Or maybe in these couple moments, it will be a reminder that what is needed is for you to bow the knee again and say, God, I, I, I kind of stepped aside from your intention. And I want to draw near to you. I just want to be close. I want to be and live in that relationship.